Amen. This is the word of God. Amen. May God write it on our hearts. You remember the rest of it? Amen. That we may not sin against him. It's the longest content-wise uh, sermon passage we've had, Kelly. Good job. Uh, seriously, wonderful job reading the text. I hope hearing her read it so well makes you realize we have a lot of cheap entertainment on screens these days that maybe doesn't give us a stomach to read a narrative that's good. Uh, and so that it plagues us sometimes, right, when we read the Bible. But not this one. <laughs> this story is jam-packed, right? And talk about good writing. I feel like Luke is just showing off his skill. It's wise to, I hope, to look at this whole passage. As you can tell by hearing that, this sermon is based on the entire passage, the whole, the whole chapter of Acts 23, as Paul is going from Jewish uh, control, really, and witness to purely Roman control uh, and, and witness. The title of the sermon is Whitewashed Wickedness. Whitewashed Wickedness. That's because this passage, as you can tell, is full of wickedness. Is it not? Lots of plots for murder. Now, I will say that there is a certain type of wickedness excuse me, in this passage that is especially dangerous to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. The gospel is something simple and beautiful. It's simple and beautiful. God, man, Christ response. God creates, keeps this world by his power. God will have glory and judgment and grace in judgment for eternity. Man sins, man lusts for glory, man lusts for power that belongs to God alone, and in sin, man will experience either judgment or grace for eternity because of Christ. Christ is God. Christ is creator, keeper, has all glory and power, and he will have glory for eternity in judgment because of his grace to choose to die for men and women who believe in him. Response. You need to respond to the gospel. You are saved by faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. The gospel is simple and beautiful. God, man, Christ, and a response. The wickedness that is espoused by the evil men in this passage that are called the council, chief priest, Sadducees, Pharisees, or the Jews in our text. The wickedness espoused by them, it's hiding in plain sight, and yet it is especially dangerous to the gospel message that I just told you. Here's why. The evil wickedness that is present in this passage, it is a religious, moral, clean, at this time, wealthy, and very washed, very pristine wickedness. I would argue it's the most deceiving kind of wickedness. In stories, we, monsters, uh, you know, gross murders, violence, uh, things like dirtiness, grimy villainy, it's very easy to say that's evil, that's wrong, stay away from it. But a beautiful lie, a half-truth, an angel of light, having power that you use to help some people, right, but you brutalize others with, these things are especially hideous. They're wicked. I actually get the evaluation of these men from Jesus himself. 
Jesus reserved while he was on the earth his harshest words and his most intense rebukes and judgments for this group in our text today. In Matthew 23, there was one occasion that Jesus said this to the group. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make one single proselyte. In other words, somebody who has converted to what they believe. And when, Jesus continues, he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Those are strong words. This wickedness. Paul himself writes about to the Thessalonians. He calls it the mystery of lawlessness already at work. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he's teaching that church about what will happen at the end. The great increase of wickedness, the the revealing of of the the, the son of destruction, this, this great antichrist. But he mentions though, hey, but on the way, right now, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Paul writes that. You see, we live in the age of two mysteries, brothers and sisters. The mystery of the gospel, simple and beautiful, God, man, Christ's response, and the mystery of lawlessness. My question to those of you in Christ this morning is this. Will you be found faithful to the mystery of the gospel these days, no matter what comes? What if persecution and trial and imprisonment, and hatred that happens to the Apostle Paul in this text, what if that comes to you? The word is clear. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. Paul was faithful. And he sets an example for us as we've been seeing in the book of Acts. Today, though, He doesn't just set an example. It also includes his faithfulness and example in failure, personal failure even. Amidst great wickedness in this passage, God is at work. And I want to see that together today. Our outline for the text will be uh, our sermon points today. It's three points, and I'm going to give you a couple of sub points under each one. That's to help those of you who are taking notes. The three points that we'll look at amidst wickedness are The stings, stings like a bee stings you, stings amidst wickedness, stealth, being stealthy amidst wickedness, and then finally, sovereignty amidst wickedness. I'll give you those again when we go through the sermon. But amidst this wickedness, there are stings, stealthiness, and most of all, sovereignty. Let's talk about the stings amidst wickedness in this passage, verses one through four. For this point, I want to get a quick context and then see two things, the sting of persecution and the sting of personal sin. So persecution and personal sin, those will be your sub points. Quick context first, Paul has been arrested by the Romans. I'm laughing because Paul's life is just absolutely insane. It happened after an angry mob of Jews have tried to beat him to death. And they were close, and then he was saved by these Roman guards. These men are angry at Paul and have accused him of three things that we learned in verse 29 of chapter 21. So if you have your Bible there, I always, when I'm hearing a sermon and a reference like that happens, I'll flip back and I'll maybe make a note 
of what passage we're in. You could do that. You could go to you know chapter 21, just a, a little bit back. Blake preached it, verse 29. They say, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people. So they think he's teaching against, that is the Jewish people. And the law, that is the law of Moses and the Torah, especially as it is taught there in Jerusalem. And then finally, and this place, and that is the temple itself, the temple that is in Jerusalem. Three charges. Moreover, they say, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. None of this is true. The context is none of this is true. Paul has done all he can to avoid offending them over these things, so much so that he's even uh, you know, was willing to be under a vow that he didn't have to be under and to join in the temple affairs. But regardless of that, they are offended by the gospel. Remember that beautiful message, God, man, Christ response that we discuss in our intro is too great of an offense. They were just about to kill Paul after he addressed them, but he was saved by the intervening Roman guards and leaders. Now, he will remain in the watch care of the Roman uh, government for the rest of the book of Acts. And so it's a big change in that regard. As you heard read in the chapter from Kelly, we studied today, Paul is still testifying and defending his faith. He's going to do that. A little bit more to the Jews here, but certainly to the Roman government eventually, and that's where our chapter ends. That being said, the context helps us with our points here because our main point of application from the context is this, to learn how we can be a good witness amidst the great wickedness that surrounds our lives, even when it stings and it hurts. For Paul, in this passage, it actually stung physically, but I want to show you, I think, also emotionally. So first, the sting of persecution. The sting of persecution. According to nonprofits in our day today, like the Voice of the Martyrs, Open Doors, Operation World, uh, according to institutions like Gordon Conwell, or even our own country's Department of State, I say all that, that's all my sources to tell you some things. Christians, these sources report, in more than 60 countries, face persecution from their governments or neighbors because of their faith. Every month, 322 Christians are killed for their faith. 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed. And 772 forms of violence, beatings, kidnappings, rapes, arrests, etc., are committed against Christians every month. I could go on, but I share this to tell you that it has only gotten worse beyond Paul's context here for the Christian in our world. In Paul, the sting of persecution has been very real. Even prior to this, Paul has been stoned and left for dead outside of a city. He's been beaten with rods multiple times. He's been beaten by this mob in this story recently. And now in our text, he is slapped across the face. <laughs> Sorry, didn't mean to scare any of you. Laughing aside, though, he's been slapped across the face here. A sting, truly, in our passage, nonetheless, but more of a form of belittlement and embarrassment tactics against him. Notice what gets him into persecution and, 
through persecution. It's in verse one. He has a clear conscience. Do you see that? He stands up and says, I have a clear conscience. He will say this again, and we'll take a closer look at it later on. But suffice it to say this morning, a clear conscience before great wickedness is a sure recipe for you to receive the painful persecution of wicked men. Go into an environment with wicked men, have a clear conscience before God, and you will declare the truth. And it may be costly. The Bible says it will be. Historically, if you study the office of high priest and this man, Ananias specifically, the historian Josephus tells us that he was known for his rash actions and his political bullying. These men postured themselves under powerful claims, married to the local leaders in government in the name of God to do the wicked acts that they do. Paul knew that going in. So the sting of persecution in this passage is real. It's an actual slap that starts us off. I point this out first because Scripture is clear that we must regard the physical suffering of other saints. We must, we must care about it. If you work through the Bible often and you read, you'll eventually get to books like Hebrews. Hebrews tells you at the end of it that you should pray for those who are in chains, in prison, persecuted, hurting. That's a normal habit for Christians, and we don't make it a normal thing. We should, and this passage, I think, helps us to do that. We can't help Paul. His suffering has happened, and it's over, and now we learn from it. But we can help others. More pointedly, our second sub-point, and that's the first point there, is the sting of wickedness. You know, it's, it's real. But how Paul conducts himself as a result is really what I'm calling our second sub-point, which is the sting of personal sin. Personal sin. You're probably asking yourself, did Paul sin here? Um... Well, let me just say, none of the commentators are help in this issue, which is frustrating. Uh, Paul's reaction in the text, there's no help because they all say different things, and none of the commentaries that I was able to look at that I really trust come down on it in a definitive way. But most of them do admit that Paul seems to lose his focus here at best, but really gets sinfully angry here at worst. Now, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you got slapped for something you didn't deserve when you didn't expect a slap to come? Maybe that's never happened. But if it has happened to you, it probably made you angry. It probably made you angry. I mean, fewer things can get us from like zero to 100, you know, seeing red, set phasers to kill, than getting hit in the head really quick. Let me explain it like this. I'm not justifying Paul here with this comment, and I'm not trying to equate this illustration to actual suffering because it's not. But maybe to help you understand the moment, have you ever been playing with a kid or your kid and you know your sweet, innocent, lovely kids right there, and all of a sudden, they just hit you in the face unexpectedly? Or maybe they like jerk and hit you in the head, and you immediately go from, I love this innocent child, to three sinful thoughts that you should not act on, Right? Because immediately you are, you know, violent, if you will. That seems to me what happens here to Paul. He slaps suddenly. His first thought is not a sanctified thought. His first thought is a sinfully angry. It's quick wit. It's quick to speak, quick to get angry. An untempered thought flies out of Paul's mouth. Make no mistake, though. It's not wasted words. It's a pointed burn, isn't it? If this was on a Facebook post, the comment section would be going crazy, right? About how, man, he absolutely got him. He isn't wrong. These men, they whitewash their wickedness, okay? They hide evil in the name of good. They're hypocrites. And this is just political bullying that's happening in this moment. 
but I want you to realize what is possibly lost by this kind of reaction. If there is any potential to witness to them in a persuasive way, that angry, flippant comment of Paul is maybe now challenging that. If there is any potential to witness to the watching Roman tribune of the love of Christ that endures persecution for the sake of truth, being silent before his persecutors, Jesus, remember that example laid before Paul? Silent before his, like a lamb before shearers that said nothing was the example of Christ as he was persecuted. So walk in this way, Peter writes into the church in 1 Peter 2. Maybe the worry here is a potential witness to those watching lost Gentiles is being damaged. I think Paul knows it. And we will see his quick wit in action after this as he stealthily responds. But I just want to take the moment Now, this is me personally. The text doesn't say this. But later in his cell, when he is alone, the space before Jesus comes to him in verse 11 and comforts him. I'm sure, I hope that this is fair to say, that his humanness kicked in. Maybe Paul, who is also a human, thought, why did I say that? Why did I say that? Why was I so quick to defend myself and call out that? Lord, forgive me. Here's my point. Persecution can have this effect on people, and I don't think Paul's above it. Persecution is a squeezing thing. It presses us in difficulty, and what comes out sometimes is a surprise to us. When situations get tough and we are to lean on God, someone once said, gold is tested by fire, man is tested by adversity. And when we are, like men and women, tested by the adversity around us, sometimes that press will eventually produce a diamond through sanctification. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we fail the test and we react wrongly. Here's what we must see. Here's what we must see. That in God's plan, even our failures have their place in his work. We must learn from this stinging effect of persecution. Even in times when we are being persecuted, remember this, God still loves us and he wants us to be holy as he is holy even when we fail to reach that holiness. Maybe I can say it like this. No one is perfect in persecution. Only one person was perfect in persecution. You guessed it. Back to that simple, beautiful message, right? The God, man, Jesus Christ. Respond. Right? The God-man, Jesus Christ, when he was squeezed, only shed, not insult, but drops of blood to atone for his people. Now, when the sting of persecution, when it produces maybe uh, the sting of personal sin, we look to Jesus who still loves and uses us. And this is exactly what Paul does, which brings us to our second point. Stealth. Stealth amidst wickedness. Stealth's a weird word, I know, but I think it's, you'll see it's necessary. Now, despite his quick-tempered tongue and honestly possible failure, Paul recovers quickly. And we see in our text, he does it stealthily. So first, let's look at this. Let's look at the stealth of Paul, which is obvious. And then I want to look at the stealth of Jesus, which is a little less obvious and a, and a little, a little uh, shorter of a point, but, but, it, but necessary. First, though, the stealth of Paul. Sub point one under this second point here, the stealth of Paul. In verse five, Paul says that he did not know uh, that it was the high priest. Um, he says that he had, had he known, he wouldn't have said anything until he was addressed. And he quotes the passage in Deuteronomy that would command such a thing. He makes clear uh, what he would have done differently out of respect 
for what the law of God says. This is point to me why I think he understands that he was rash in his response. Now, some say Paul is blind at this moment in history, like he actually cannot see very well. He struggles to see. We know from other scriptures, he writes with big letters or he talks about his ailment uh, of his vision. And so it's likely maybe Paul had an issue with his eyes. So he really actually couldn't see that it was Ananias that was speaking. That's a possibility. Others also say that it was loud. Maybe it was a loud environment and he did not know that it was the high priest that was addressing him. Regardless, to be slapped, regardless of why, it is important to see that Paul, I think, is quick on his feet. He recovers well, and he evaluates the situation for what it is. This may seem too practical, but I hope you'll find yourself encouraged by some of this. Though he has had the opportunity to share before these leaders prior, and, and, uh, and and he took it now, now we see that he has clearly perceived something else that he is to do in this situation. So remind you, previous chapters, he has absolutely declared his case, Right? But now, instead of going into that, when he has a chance to speak, he actually perceives and does something different. Rather than fight to establish an opportunity to witness to them, Paul will now seek a way out of a dangerous situation that he has determined is unfolding in front of him. Let me show you. Look at verse 6 again. Now, when Paul perceived, you see that? He perceived. One part of this group is Sadducees, the other Pharisees. His perception, he's being stealthy here, becomes discernment and he realizes that he can avoid their joint judgment by causing them to devour one another. He literally puts that together in this moment. How do we know that? Well, you heard it clearly when it was read, I hope, right? In case you missed it, we can simply summarize that he knew the hatred and the hostility that these groups had for one another. Luke tells you the history right there. If you want to know how to figure out context, Don't be worried about all the Bible tools you need. Just read the Bible. Luke tells you right here, these guys hate each other, right? Pharisees, Sadducees, they don't get along. Why? Because they believe a world of different stuff. Well, Paul knows that. And what does he do? He doesn't lie, but he doesn't elaborate either. He cunningly mentions that it is because of the resurrection of the dead that he's on trial. Okay? Brother, sister, Paul knows that he just pulled a pin out of a grenade and he rolled it out there in front of them and was like, yeah, it's about the resurrection, knowing that that thing's going to go off and set them against one another. Make no bones about it. This brother is being cunning. You've got the context there in front of you. You see that these two groups have very different beliefs. Paul uses that to create division in hopes of securing his own safety. Now, some think of the man Paul as being someone with a martyrdom or a martyr complex. That is that, you know, Paul must die for Jesus. Remember us talking about that in previous passages? Now, he did write for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's true. But often, me and you, we wrongly exaggerate that to mean that Paul was looking to throw himself into martyrdom as soon as possible. And that is not true. This passage shows that. Paul knows this. He knows that when there is no means of escape available, to him personally. And when God does not very supernaturally deliver him, that will be his time to go. That's when his race will be concluded, when he will put off this body and put on the resurrection, you know, the hope, right? Uh, to be with God, absent from the body and present with the Lord and eventually raised. Paul knows that. 
But I'm thankful for this passage because this passage shows us who need to think about living in a world of wickedness a way to do that wisely. Now, we must be careful with wisdom like this. It seems dishonest what Paul does, though it is true. You see, for Paul, it was true. He was a witness because of the resurrection. His whole ministry is nothing if Jesus hasn't risen. He says the whole Christian life is nothing, and you, a Christian, should be pitied more than anything else if Jesus didn't rise. So did he say something true? Yes. His conscience is clear in this moment. Now, let me say this. Some people in Paul's situation maybe would not feel like him, and that would be okay. Some people's consciences, as a gift from God to them, would allow them in that moment to say more and to leave those judges unified in against him. Some may not have been able to do what Paul did, but Paul, who is a, a, a absolute um, stalwart in the area of conscience, I mean, he is a beast. You want to learn how to inform your conscience? Go look at Paul. He's showing us here, though, that his conscience is clear, so clear that he's able to do whatever, hey, it's about the resurrection, guys, which is true, knowing that he would avoid the issue. Now, like Paul, we must do something, right? Because here's the thing. Paul, Paul's not an opportunist here. You may not know what that is. Opportunism is a sinful thing. To know what is advantageous and to seek it as an opportunity for personal gain, that is a wrong thing to, to make a, a constant habit. You should not make that a constant habit. What happens is, is you, you value opportunity more than your own convictions and you end up compromising. So opportunism is a no. However, what Paul does here, interacting with opportunity as wisdom sees it, well, okay, that's helpful. So what do we do? Because guys, here's the truth. If opportunism is sinful, but wisdom deals in opportunity, what do we do when we have opportunities? Well, like Paul, we must do something. In other words, you cannot, if you are suffering amidst wickedness, if you're trying to be a light, if it gets pressure on you, we cannot fall victim to this idea of the paralysis of analysis. You ever heard that? Being paralyzed being paralyzed, not able to move, not able to do anything because you just keep analyzing the situation you never do anything. We can't be that way. We need the stealth example here. We need the clarity. So what do we do? Well, let me encourage you. And kids, this is where you learned about this this morning. Jesus left us two ways, two things to remember in his example from the gospels. I think Paul's using them in this text. Jesus told his disciples when he sent them out to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It's an intentional contrast, yet, you, yet you're to do both. Why did Jesus say that? Because there will be times where pursuing shrewdness and being wise as a serpent, think about what a snake does to preserve its own self. It does a lot. Snakes are notoriously tricksters, right? Does that mean you sin? No. But does it mean you act with the wisdom of the serpent? You can Jesus says, hey, be wise as a serpent. Think about what's wise. But also, do not forget, be innocent as a dove. So that's one, one way to approach a situation like Paul's in. How do I maintain both? Okay, then you make a choice. And Paul did. He made a choice. What do you do next? Well, listen, here's Jesus' words. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. 
and I will love him, Jesus says, and what? Manifest myself to him. That's John 14, 21. So when Jesus is teaching his disciples, he says, love God, keep his commandments. As you do, you will love God. God, the Father will love you. I will love you. And what does Jesus say there at the end? Manifest myself to you. In other words, and this is something we teach in discipleship here at RBC, Jesus hides himself behind obedience. If you get to a place in life where you have to make the decision, as wise as a serpent, as innocent as a dove, and you make the decision, be ready to evaluate what happens to you. Because what happens to you is oftentimes the indicator you need to know, did I make the right decision in this intense moment? Because if it's a world of conviction and you realize a a host of sin has plopped in your lap and you've gone the wrong way, guess what you get to do? Repent. (laughs) Repent. Turn from and turn back to the Lord. Right? But what if you do the right thing? What happens? Well, John 14, 21 says this manifesting presence of Jesus that manifests himself to you. Jesus hides himself behind obedience. I could go on about numerous examples, but let's see it here. Let's see it, because that's what I mean. The stealth of Paul has happened, okay? It's done, in scene. Verse 10, right? I mean, he's done it. It's all gone crazy in this moment where they're like, you know, done. And then if you notice, uh, verse 10, he, uh, the dissension became violent. You know, they're, tar- they're wanting to tear the man to pieces. And so he's thrown back into the barracks. And look at verse 11. Notice the time frame, the following night. It wasn't immediate. It was in that wee hours of the morning, I think more than likely the following night, that means late at night, it means that Paul probably slept good because he was like, yeah, I did the right thing. And then he's like part of this crew that can't stay at peace. So he wakes up early in the morning, right? He gets woken up with worry. And he's like, what, what have I done, you know? And who is there to meet him? Who manifests himself to him as the promise toward obedience? Jesus. The stealth of Jesus Look what Paul got in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, if you've got a red ink Bible, this is red letter. (laughs) This is Jesus. And Jesus says, take courage, Paul, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, that section of your life is over. Now you must testify also in Rome. Can, can, can more clarity be given to someone that was maybe worried about whether or not they did the right thing in a wickedness situation? No. Paul got to worship as a result of his obedience, which says something about the stealth of Jesus. Amazingly, Jesus appears to Paul in prison that very night. Can you imagine this? I say Jesus hides himself behind obedience. Paul's likely worried. He obeys. What happens? Jesus is there. The 19th century hymn gets it right. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. No one else could heal all of our soul's diseases. No, not one. No, not one. If Paul could sing it, he would sing this next verse. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. You see, the passage is clear. Even if it is difficult for us to do ourselves, the stealth of Paul is a decided action amidst wickedness, and the stealth of Jesus shows up to confirm him. This part, this is part of our hope in persecution. It's part of it, right? And it's only a small part. Sometimes you're wise and and you do what God has and he has for you these kind of moments, praise God. The other side of it is you do something trying to honor God. It was the wrong thing. God's conviction meets you. That was sin. You repent, you turn back to the Lord and then you seek to obey. Do you see how this is only a part? You see how it's limited, I hope so. 
Nonetheless, it's in our passage. So we've seen the sting of it. Persecution hurts. It's personal sometimes. You fail. Secondly, it's also what? It's this like you know, nagging kind of, uh, you know, just, just difficulty where we need stealth and we need this like, discernment. But here is what our final point is and the rest of our passage covers. Sovereignty. Sovereignty amidst wickedness. Really, verse 12 all the way through 35. For the rest of our passage, we have to put on the lens of sovereignty if we're going to rightly evaluate what God does for Paul amidst such great wickedness. We'll see two things constantly in this section. God is sovereign over people, and then also God's sovereign over places. That's what I want to show you as we evaluate this section. He's sovereign over people. He's sovereign over places. Let's talk about the people in this passage. All right, let me give you three ends, note taker. He's sovereign over people, naysayers, nephews, and national leaders. All right, let's talk about the naysayers. That's the Jewish leaders in our text, right? The rebels. How is God sovereign over them? Well, listen, 40 men, 40 soldier Jew men, they took their man dress, their Jew dress, they put that thing up and girded their loins. They grabbed a weapon. They went to a meeting, a secret meeting, and they said, we're going to vow to you, Yahweh, to kill this Paul, and we will not eat or drink until we do it. And then they came out, guns a-blazing, to the leaders and saying, hey, we're behind y'all. Y'all lure him out, we'll take him out. That's wickedness, right? These naysayers, that's a formidable thing. You cannot tell me that you hear when this is read to you and you naturally think, oh, yes, um, God has it handled. No worries. You shouldn't think that way, right? Like Paul is probably challenged to think like, okay, 40, right? I mean, this is serious. It's quite the opposite that pops into my mind. You see the naysayers, and we see in the passage, what do they mean? They mean great harm. But what is God's sovereignty doing with them? God literally uses their great desire to do harm to do what? To give Paul great protection instead. That's sovereignty. God is sovereign over the naysayers using their action to cause his plan to unfold. That's marvelous. What about the second end? Nephews. Paul has a sister. <laughs> Who knew, <laughs> right? Well, actually, no one until this verse. Literally, this is it. We don't know anything about it, else about his family uh, outside of history and trying to report. But I mean, clearly, he has a sister. Clearly, she has a kid, his nephew, all right? And the text calls, it, call, calls him a young man. Um, and if you notice, this big, scary Roman tribune takes him by the hand, walks him over, right, holding hands with him, you know, and, and hears him out like you'd hear a little boy out. And, and I want you to, I mean, I, so I doubt he's some like teenager or some like young man. He's probably a very little lad, like a, young, a youngster, who's been allowed to just kind of be a kid over to the side, but he's a very astute kid, like some of you children are very astute, and you love to listen to mom and dad's conversation, while mom and dad are not thinking you're listening to their conversation. And you gather everything, and then you can go and regurgitate that elsewhere. So this little boy, here's these Jewish men, you know, who have girded their loins, like, we're going to kill Paul. And he's like, Paul's my uncle. And he goes to his mom. He's like, mom, they want to kill Paul. And then she's like, go tell Paul because he can get through there because he's little, right? He goes to the jail and he's like in the barracks. And he's like, hey, uh, uncle, 40 dudes want to kill you. This is a problem. Paul is like, hey, okay, I want you to go right now to that guy, Centurion. And then Paul's hoping that a, a Roman Centurion, leader of 100, is going to listen to a little boy. And that little boy is going to then 
Give information, and he's going to go to a tribune, leader of a thousand, and he's going to say, hey, this is the information, and then Paul's going to be kept from, from death. Do you realize how crazy this is? But kids, listen to this, because this is really encouraging, I hope, to you. In God's economy, even a little boy is used to accomplish his beautiful purposes. It reminds me of a little boy that said, I've got five loaves of fish and two bread. It's not much. Or five loaves of bread, two fish. It's not much, but I'll give it, Jesus. And Jesus multiplies it, and he feeds a multitude, right? Off of the faith of a little boy. And here's a little, a little lad that goes. And what does God's sovereignty do? The nephew only meant to obey his mom. God used him to move a Roman centurion tribune and 470 armed men to action. That's sovereignty. And it's marvelous. Isn't it wonderful? God's sovereign over the nephew. Naysayers, nephews, what about national leaders? Can God help us there? Again, the bigger picture here is that these men represent the Roman Empire in Jerusalem. Um, the current leaders of the entire known world, Rome, at this time. And look what God is doing. Okay, By allowing this division to happen among the Jews, to allow the conspiracy to kill Paul to happen, and then to cause these leaders to say they need to hear Paul out. Notice our passage ends with verse 35. Felix, a governor, is going to hear him out. These national leaders, they meant to quell a rebellion. That's what they meant by their action. They want to stop rebellion. God protects and preserves Paul's life so that he can share Jesus with them and their superiors all the way to Caesar himself. God is sovereign over national leaders. Isn't that marvelous? God is sovereign over people, beloved. Whether they be a naysayer or your nephew or a national leader, God is sovereign. Do you believe this? You will not endure as a Christian through wickedness without great, robust hope in God's ability to work it out in the end. The man who is our example today wrote before this in Romans 8, a favorite verse of ours, he wrote and said what? It is God who works together all that I do for his glory and my good. You believe that? Paul did. God's sovereign over people. God is also sovereign over places. Three J's for you note takers. He's sovereign over Jewish courts, jail cells, and jurisdictions. Jewish courts. An end has come uh, according to Jesus in verse 11. In verse 11, we see that Paul is now done before the Jewish courts. Okay, he will leave those behind from now on and he will be brought before governors and kings for Jesus' namesake. The summary letter that provided, that's provided for us here by Luke, that's verses 26 through 30 of our passage. It offers a wonderful synopsis from a Roman view, which is neat. That's why Luke put it in there. It's very Greek in that way. And the synopsis is how pure Paul has been regardless of how hard the hearts of the Jews have remained. So think about it like this. The last thing that these Jewish courts heard before the Roman guards took Paul away is this. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. The last formal court held by the Jews against Paul, the last one, had one message at its end before it now changes into Roman hands. And what was it? Jesus is alive. The Jews have one message to sit with in their own court system, according to the sovereignty of God. Jesus is alive. Do something with it. 
Paul meant it as a stealthy, you know, duck of, uh, of whatever. The Jews meant it to be the, the leading blow had it not, you know, ruined them. God meant it to be the one thing that to this day many Jews still deny, which is so sad. But that this Jesus, this Jesus is alive. He's alive. God is sovereign over that place, the Jewish court. God has a lot to say about his people, the Jews, a lot. And there are numerous theological systems that try to make sense of what God has said. I'm of the camp today that I hold out hope. I hold out a lot of hope that people right now who still follow the way of Yahweh according to Judaism in the Old Testament, they can still see Jesus. They can see him. They can see him for what he was, see him as the Messiah, not reject him like these men do, place all their hope and faith in him, and God will save them and pardon them. Do you believe that? I believe that. I want to see that. But here's the point. God is sovereign over that place, the Jewish court. And now, according to verse 11, Jesus has made it clear he's done there, and now the witness will go to Rome, a.k.a. the nations. Marvelous, right? That's big scale. What about the jail cell? Was God sovereign there? You bet. <laughs> Paul wanted to waver. When Paul had failed and was likely feeling discouraged, Jesus showed up. And what is Jesus' first words to Paul? Does it address how he's doing? You bet. And what does it say in verse 11? Jesus' first words, take courage. <laughs> Be of good cheer. Take heart. Be encouraged. I know that you love your brothers, the Jews, and no one loved them more than Paul. Go read Romans 9. No one. Paul, Paul, in Romans 9, before getting to them, has said, I'll give up everything, if I could, for them to know Jesus. And Jesus shows up and he says, don't be discouraged. Don't beat yourself up. I've got a plan, Paul. I'm sovereign. I'm sovereign over this moment. Be courageous. You, you've done what I asked you to do among them. Now go do what I'm asking you to do in front of the whole world. I'll take care of them. And Paul rests there. God is sovereign over that private place as well. Marvelous God. And finally, jurisdictions. We see God's plan is big, much bigger than we or Paul likely could ever imagine. Our text ends with this transition of Paul. He goes from the local tribunal leader of a thousand to this governor of the region, okay? Think leader of tens of thousands of cities. Paul ends up in the amazing castle, a fort that was built during Herod's time called the Praetorum. And, and this is a massive like place where the best leader that's of that area is the one who's going to be in that house. And that's where God has moved Paul to be a witness. He has now been placed in Felix's uh, place like, like, uh, like Pontius Pilate was staying in the great, great house that was built next to the temple by Herod. When Jesus was on trial, Pontius Pilate gets Jesus, just like Felix receives Paul here. What happens with Pontius Pilate says, hey, what jurisdiction are you from? Oh, he's from Galilee. I'm going to send him over to Herod, right? different Herod. Right? And he said, I'm going to send him to him because that's his jurisdiction. Well, Felix asks, well, where are you from? And Paul's like, I'm from, I'm from this area. He said, okay, well, then I'm going to hear you out. I'm not sending you somewhere else. I'm going to hear you out. Cliffhanger. Now we're all ready for next week, I hope, right? Because that's the point. But before we you know, preach next week's sermon, let's, let's recognize something. Let's recognize what God is doing in his sovereignty. We'll deal with Felix next week. But for right now, do we need to realize something? That he, Felix, is now a very pagan Roman official that has a lot of sway over an empire? That as he moves from Felix and he goes on to the next governor's house and eventually appeals all the way to Caesar, that somehow in 58, roughly, 59 A.D., 
this one missionary example that the book of Acts has held up to us, but underneath him is Philip and Peter and all these other apostles. And not a, Philip, not an apostle. But Philip, also under the apostles, is the evangelist. And Titus and Timothy, these, these pastors. And, and clearly, this great work of salvation that God is working in the known Roman provinces, it is growing, it is amassing. And in God's sovereignty of this moment, we realize he is the Lord of all jurisdiction. These men will stand on the, the, the presupposition. They think that they're the kings of their world. While silently, through the passive, loving, lay down your life kind of gospel witness, all these martyrs, all these Christians are going to continue to invade. Jesus' kingdom is silently and powerfully invading the Roman Empire. So much so, just peep history with me at the end here, that eventually a Roman emperor named Constantine, 313 A.D., that's around 250, 260 years after our times, uh, after the, 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 our passage's time. That emperor, whether he was real about it or not, will realize Christianity is enough of a force. It has changed this empire so much that in the Edict of Milan, he will make it the state religion of the Roman Empire. Now, God's sovereignty is a greater hope than the wickedness that surrounds us. It gets our eyes on Jesus when we're in our jail cell. It gets our eyes on Jesus when we are before the people that we think this is all that God can reach. It also gets our eyes on Jesus to believe that when Jesus said he'll have every tribe, nation, and tongue, he meant it. And it lets us keep our eyes on something simple and beautiful. We will not be thwarted. God, man, Christ response. This simple formula given by God from the creation of the world, even before it. God's wonderful sovereignty promised that he would accomplish this. God's redemptive history gave tons of topography, pointing over and over again that he would accomplish it. God sends his own son at the right time. Christ dies, rises, ascends, and will come back. He points us in this age of the church to point everybody back to that moment in him, realizing that a consummation is coming, an eternal life. Why? God, man, Christ response, a love story, God's story. Do you need to endure the sting of persecution to make it through it? Yes. Do you need stealth and wisdom? Absolutely. Does God give those? Yes. But you know what you need the most? It's all over our past. I've tried to show you a hope that God is in control. Beloved, God is in control. He's in control. Can you rest in that? Because when you rest in that and then you work from that place, Everything else will fall in place. Do we believe that? I hope we do. Paul shows it. Let's pray, and then we'll try to sing together of the marvelous, uh, you know, with a thousand tongues, we couldn't declare how good God is, but we'll try our best, and then we'll pray. Lord, thank you for this uh, wonderful example. God, thank you. Help us to be like Paul. Thank you for the humanness of the passage. Seems like Paul lost his temper. We've done that, God. We do confess that. Lord, not only that, but you worked that failure for your good, uh, excuse me, for your glory and for Paul's good. You worked all this for that. Lord, I pray that our children would see this little nephew and just see a lot of hope today. I pray that we as you know, moms and dads, or single men, women, family, friends, people in this room, we would just really look at this wonderful example of faithfulness amidst great wickedness and see your hand all over it. And Lord, if we find ourselves, which many of us do, struggling to continue and work hard for your glory, God, help us to receive encouragements like Paul has received here. And to see even in the things that are hard to understand that there is a great hope in your sovereign care. 
Thank you for taking care of us. Help us to sing about it now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.